0: I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you
1: and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president.
0: Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. I'm Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. And today we interview Stacey Abrams, candidate for governor of Georgia. Stacey is the House Minority Leader for the Georgia General Assembly and currently a state representative for the 89th House District. Uh, if elected, she would become the first black female governor in the United States. She has an amazing story. She was president of her class at Spelman, graduated from Yale Law School as a Truman Scholar, daughter of two ministers and one of six kids. Uh, she uh, and I talk about a wide-ranging topics, everything from growing up uh, in the South getting involved in politics, the obstacles she's overcome uh, in Georgia in politics and and a lot of the good that she's done for the state of Georgia. Uh, Unfortunately, the audio on this one is not great, but the conversation is. So I highly recommend you take a listen anyway. Stacey Abrams, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So Stacey, I first heard you back in 2004. It was the first time I ever saw you speak in person and I, I just got picked as a Truman Scholar. And it incidentally was the same weekend where I met uh, Arena co-founder Swathi, and you know we've been working together on various projects ever since. So I just want to say uh, thank you once again for for joining us, and we've been incredibly proud to see everything you've accomplished over the years.
1: It has been a pleasure.
0: Well, you let's start from the beginning. You know, you grew up. Uh, well, you were born in the, the great state of Mississippi, and you're one of of six siblings, from from what I understand, and the daughter of two ministers. Uh, You seem like you got into politics relatively early in life, but where did that sort of passion for public service and politics come from? At what age do you remember wanting to get involved in
1: politics? I don't remember thinking of politics as politics. I grew up with parents who at the time were, uh, my mom was a librarian and my dad was a shipyard worker. They both believed very much in public service. Because they said, even though we were struggling economically, no matter how little we had, there was someone with less. And it was our job to serve that person. I found their approach a little inefficient because there were uh, six kids, two parents, trying to serve everyone we could find in Mississippi. And I remember asking my parents, isn't there some larger organization doing this? And my parents said that's called government. And so for me, the, the movement into public policy, into politics, was really about trying to increase the efficiency of the service that needed to be provided. Uh, and then I went to college and understood that you could officially go into this world and you could be a part of a political system and you could learn how to be a good deliverer of these services. And then I found out later on that politicians don't always do what you tell them if you're a good bureaucrat. And So I figured I'd run for office myself and do it on my own. And
0: I read somewhere that you were hired as a campaign speechwriter at the age of 17. How did that happen?
1: At the end of my uh, high school career, I got a summer job and I was typing for a candidate who was running against Cynthia McKinney. It was the first time she ran for Congress, and Dr. Eugene Walker was one of the other candidates in the race. He knew the woman who hired me, and she asked me to come in and volunteer, and then she hired me to type things up for the campaign. I got a speech to type and did not like it, and so I started rewriting it as I typed it. I turned it in, and they liked the new version so much, they let me write other speeches.
0: Wow. And you went on and uh, you went to Spelman and you became the student body president. Was that the first time you ran for anything?
1: It was the first time I ran. It was not the first time I was elected. When I was in high school, I went off on a trip. And when I came back, I'd been elected to the uh, Student Performing Arts Council, uh, mainly because no no one else wanted to run. So I put my name in and I won without opposition or even knowing I was in the race.
0: So when you ran, so, you know, you're running for student body president, Spelman. Uh, what, what are some of the, I'm always fascinated by these, these campus elections. You know, what, what does one run on? What was your message and your platform uh, back then?
1: The first time I ran was actually for vice president and I ran because my message was that students across campus were getting different degrees of service from our administration and the most salient issue I could use to demonstrate the abs and haves not haves and have nots on campus was that there was a dorm that only had one ply toilet paper whereas my dorm had two ply and so I had a whole campaign string that talked about the fact that why should one dorm have access to two ply toilet paper where everyone else struggled with one ply <laughs> now I, I did develop a more salient body of issues, including the the fast rising tuition, making sure that students on campus really did have access to services and that we recognize that on a campus with very wealthy students, there were students like myself who were struggling to make ends meet and we deserve to have the same access to service and opportunity as even the most well situated students.
0: And so you you went from Spellman, you get a Truman scholarship and then you go on to Yale Law School, uh, and I had to I had the privilege of having a um, similar trajectory there. You know, I went, I was at uh, state university in New York and got the Truman and went to Yale right away, right out of school. And I think one thing, one experience I had was I came from a school that was not represented in a place like Yale um, a ton and you know, Spelman, very similar. Um, what was your experience like uh, starting uh, in a school like Yale um, where you've got like a ton of people coming from like the Harvards, the Yales, et cetera. You know, as as the as one of six siblings, daughter of two ministers coming from Mississippi and, and Georgia. Um, was that an easy transition? And, you know, how did you navigate those initial years in law school?
1: It, it was not easy at all. Uh, there's a degree of class consciousness that becomes very acute when you're at a place like Yale. When you could sit in a classroom with someone who, and I, and I don't mean this facetiously. I was in class and someone sitting behind me made a million dollars on an IPO during, I think it was tours. Wow. That's something I would never conceived of. I had no idea what an IPO was. Uh, but more than that, I looked around a classroom. Very few people who looked like, uh, and certainly. Only a handful who had experiences like my own, uh, particularly coming from the Deep South. And, and, you know, it puts into sharp relief how much you have to do to even patch up to be able to go into a place like that. And there's no degree of admission policy that can change the difference in my background and a number of our colleagues at Yale. But I think the other part of it was because of the Truman, because of Bellman, um, because during I went to the University of Texas for a master's degree before I got there, I was able to enter with a degree of self-confidence that said that even if I wasn't like others, I'd earned my way in, and I could earn my way out.
0: Yeah, I remember, you know, I distinctly remember getting my first few weeks. Every time I'd open my mouth. I felt like I was, like, not making any sense. (laughs) I don't know. I don't don't know where that went away. It it definitely went away at some point. Um, But it was definitely scary in the beginning. Um, And I could only imagine, I mean, you coming from the Deep South, coming um, from a much more underrepresented background, like you can only imagine um, how challenging that was. But shout out to the Truman, because I agree. That was definitely that, that that gives you a, a circle of people uh, that you can come in knowing and and know a certain level of confidence, and so I think that made a huge difference. Um, so you, you leave Yale Law School, you have uh, uh, you know all sorts of professional experiences, but you run for office pretty young. Um, how old were you when you first ran for um, the Georgia House of Representatives?
1: I was thirty three.
0: Wow. And so uh, tell us about that first election, because you had, um, would you have two opponents that you had to beat in that race?
1: I did. And one had actually held the seat for, oh, about 12 years until he got redrawn during the redistricting. Um, He lost that seat. He then had run for the state Senate seat that covered the same area, lost that race and was very determined to come back. My other opponent had grown up in the neighborhood where I lived. Only he'd been there for 40 years and I'd been there for two years. So he was able to claim a a relationship with the community I didn't have. And and the same was true with George Maddox, the state representative I ran against. And so I had to figure out what was my narrative. I couldn't run as a community activist because I hadn't been there long enough. I couldn't run as a Native daughter because I moved into my house in November of 04 and I'm running in 06. So I ran as a technocrat. I ran basically saying, I understand government. I know how it works. I know how it doesn't work. And I can answer any question you have about how to get what you need. Um, Because before I ran for office, I was deputy city attorney for the city of Atlanta. And so at my campaign event, I would have people just ask me questions. It was kind of like, you know, a Jeopardy game of public policy. And people became impressed with my command of issues. And so when I was competing with these two more seasoned community members, I could demonstrate a facility of and a command of information that was unusual and got me the attention I needed so I was able to win I also raised a lot of money and knocked on a whole lot of doors. <laughs> and uh, you
0: once elected, you were part of a group. You may even have led the group from, from what I understand, um, this group that they call the strike team. Uh, tell us about uh, the strike team and, and what you were able to accomplish and what you were able to stop uh, over those years.
1: Ravi, you do get really good research. <laughs> um, so I, was, I got into the legislature in '06. My first year was 07. And by 2008, I realized, one, it was a horrible thing to be in the minority, and two, if you're in the minority, you have to find innovative ways to push back against the majority. My colleagues in the legislature had been in the majority for more than 130 years. So the, the Democratic Party had controlled the House and the Senate and the governor's mansion for 130 years. By the time I got there, the house had only been in the minority since 2004. So we weren't used to it. I watched us lose opportunities and squander moments, not because we weren't thoughtful, but because we'd never been in the minority. So we didn't know how to scrap. Uh, And I, being a minority, as I told my colleagues later on when I stood for a leader, like I've been a minority for a really long time, I am very good at it, and so I created a. I asked a friend of mine who was in the legislature, who was much more uh, well known and, and well liked, to help me convene this small group of legislators so that we could create guerrilla warfare against the Republicans. Uh, and so one thing we did was get a number of members of the legislature who never asked questions to start asking questions during really tight timeframes during one of the important days of the session, called crossover day. And it starts at 10 a.m. and has to end by midnight. And so we gave people questions to ask so they could gum up the works. And a bill that normally would have taken 10 minutes to be read, debated, asked, took 30 minutes, or 40 minutes. Because these random people would stand up and ask, those banal questions or complicated questions no one knew the answers to. The majority leader and the speaker noticed that something was going on but had no idea what had precipitated it because they just had never seen a Democratic Party organize itself in that way. And they dismissed it. They just assumed people woke up this the morning really ready to ask questions. And so we were able to slow down events and stop some bills that otherwise would have passed we
0: logged up and they never made it across the finish line. And, you know, I I spent six years down south. I lived in Tennessee and Mississippi recently. I'm back up in New York now, but, uh, you know, there's a huge debate going on right now about the future of the Democratic Party in the south as a whole. But that debate seems to be um, focusing more and more on on a handful of states that seem to be uh, well within striking distance for, for Democrats, uh, no no pun intended with the strike team, but you you're in the middle of the biggest one. So Georgia seems to be trending in many ways uh, favorably for Democrats. What's going on on the ground? Um, and tell us a little bit about uh, your big voter registration project and how that might be related to the future of the Democratic Party in the South.
1: Georgia is one of the fastest growing states in the nation. It is one most diverse states in the South, and it is the most diverse in the deep South. So the deep South being Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. Georgia in particular is today 53% white, non-Hispanic, 47% people of color. That is unheard of for a deep South state. Uh, The last time even the sort of general South was this diverse was South Carolina post construction. But what this means in terms of campaign capacity and the ability to win elections is that we keep waiting for this inflection point where the number of people of color outnumber everything else. And so that's going to dramatically change our voting. I would argue that it's actually the capacity to build a true coalition that why democracy matters so much. And in Georgia, you have a sufficient number of progressive whites moderate whites, and people of color who tend to be more progressive in their politics, that if they align together, have a sufficient number of votes to win statewide elections. going The problem is we don't invest in this coalition. We spend more money trying to convince Republicans who left the party in the 80s because of Reagan, or in the 90s because of Clinton, or last Thursday because they just don't like us. And instead of trying to cultivate our own voters, people who share our values, we spend a lot of money trying to convince Republicans that it's safe to be a Democrat. The the flaw in that strategy is that you are devaluing your own voice and you're investing in a voice that has consistently told you to go away. And and my argument is that we have to instead value our votes as much as we value the votes of others. And that means, by extension, investing in voters of color. Uh, In 2014, Georgia had 800,000 unregistered people of color in the state. That's South Dakota. Uh, I've heard people talk about it. I knew that there was a large number, but really being confronted with how large the gap was, pushed me in action. And so I founded the New Georgia Project. We have registered more than 200,000 people of color since 2014.
0: And as we look ahead, you are in the middle of one of the, uh, I would say, to put it lightly, hottest primaries in the country right now. And uh, as somebody who doesn't live in Georgia, I think it's hard to to follow everything that's going on in this race. And so um, we're super excited to talk to you because, you know, candidly, most of the people in our circle uh, and arena support you. And then maybe that's because we're, you know, Truman's and maybe it's because, you know, I I come from yellow, uh, but, but it seems like there's something else there too, which is you seem to have touched a nerve with the establishment down there in a way that gets us pretty excited. Uh, what, why is there, uh, and you can definitely take issue with my characterization of the establishment, um, being in some ways, uh, um, a little bit alarmed by you, but, uh, what is it that's going on down there and and what is it that you represent that seems to be a threat even to the democratic establishment in some ways in the state of Georgia?
1: I would say that it's a faction of the democratic establishment led in part by the former governor of Georgia who espouses a belief that to win a statewide election, we have to cater to and build a coalition that includes people who roundly reject progressive politics. I disagree with that. Not to say that you should not build the largest tent possible and I welcome everyone in, but what I'm not willing to do is to compromise how I talk about my values in order to entice them to come on board. And that's unusual. Uh, In Georgia, we've traditionally seen campaigns run to the left during a primary and to the right in general. My argument is that when we are running to the right, we leave behind voters who fundamentally do not trust politics. And those are the voters who register, but stay home campaign after campaign, who will turn out for a presidential election, but will not turn out for a midterm because they simply don't trust politics and they don't know what politicians stand for. I've been unapologetically aggressive in the way I describe my campaign and very broad in the way I describe the coalition I want to build where I want to center communities of color, engage progressive whites, bring along anyone who's disaffected or feels that their voices aren't being heard in our political discourse, and I want to spend money on that early. Not after I've spent a lot of money on television and not as a, a nice to have in the last three weeks of an election, but at the very beginning. And that's a different way to run a campaign, especially on the state level. Now, I have an opponent. I I think that she and I share some progressive values. I think that if you look at my track record, I am substantially more experienced. I not only served as House Minority Leader for seven years, I got bills through despite having 62 of 180 members. I not only got bills through for me, I helped my members pass legislation. I helped Republicans find ways to do good stuff and so work together with republicans to save uh, education programs that were in jeopardy to support uh, and invest in transportation and transit i've beaten republicans on tax bills more than once and i've done so without being you know to have I, i don't engage in ad hominem attacks against another party i don't do this the space of being hyper oppositional. I do it from a space of leadership where when I work with Republicans or Democrats or people in between, I do so in a way that creates an opportunity for all of us to be successful if we should, or for us to hold the right people accountable if they're doing something wrong. But beyond that, I'm also a very experienced entrepreneur. I've Started businesses business that didn't work out well, and I've started businesses that have been very successful. My opponent has not. Uh, I'm also an attorney, like her, but even in my legal background, I have an expertise in healthcare policy and tax policy, public finance. Um, I know government, not just as an elected official, but as someone who is responsible for administering programs and helping build capacity at the local level. And, you know, for fun, I write romance novels. I <laughs> so, And under, not under your own name. Why did you not write them under your own name? Because when I first published, it was during my third year of law school. And I also wrote my first uh, tax article on the operational distance of unrelated business income tax <laughs> Was that the ad of Google? If you Googled my name, it would have been the moral of advertising romance novels by Alan Greenspan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a good reason. So, um, you know. It- to sort of close out the conversation a little bit, I mean, we could close out on probably the most important topic there is in, in policy in Georgia, which is uh, our kids education. And in reading about you, you know, I'm ride or die, Stacey Abrams, no matter what, but I have an interesting background because, you know, through the Truman scholarship, I met John King and I met Seth Andrew and I went on to start charter schools in the South. And so there's a part of me that, um, when I read your your platform, I'm like, all right, I'm gung ho because you're you're for expansion of computer science, uh, especially for the most vulnerable and underrepresented, which is so important. You're for expansion of pre K, etc. Um, and but but it seems like one of the big issues uh, that like that divides you and Stacey Evans. And you know, once again, I'm 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 for you no matter what here because this is not I'm not a single issue voter. But it does seem like one issue that divides you and Stacey Evans is. The issue of uh, potentially charter schools, it's hard to tell, but definitely the idea of privatization of education. And, um, you know, I'm against vouchers for charters, you know, very similar to probably what the Obama administration's policy was on this issue. Help us understand what the, the sort of dividing line between you and Stacey Evans is on some of the key issues of um, what they would call education reform issues uh, down in Georgia.
1: So, so let me start with where I stand. I believe in public education. I believe that we should publicly fund access to education and that rules of public education are fairly clear. Everyone is entitled. No one can be denied. That's the, the challenge I have with any deviation from that is that you're creating opportunities for discrimination. And that discrimination can seem benign, but it has an impact. I think that charter schools are an important tool in the arsenal for delivery of education to specific populations. The problem is when charter schools become the excuse not to fund and support and improve our existing public schools. Yeah. What's happened is that the fundamental notion of charters moved away from their original inception and they've become a tool and sometimes a weapon being used by privatization experts as a way to divert attention from the underfunding of our public education. And so where I stand, I think that there are great pu- charter schools, public charters run by nonprofit charter organizations that do good work. Char- uh, Drew Charter School in East Lake is a perfect example. of that. But where I draw the line is where we start to divert funds from public education into charter schools that are not held accountable and do not deliver results. Yeah. What that creates is antagonistic relationship within our public system where our children are the ones who are harmed. Charter schools in Georgia, for example, are not required to serve special needs children, which means you can have a school system where you deviate funds, to a school that then cherry picks the students it wants to support, but we don't replace those dollars in the existing public school that is down the street. And so I, I think it's disingenuous when we argue that charter schools solve problems. Charter schools are a solution, but they are to be used judiciously with strong oversight and should be partners in funding, but should not receive the exact same funding as a traditional public school because they are not held to the same responsibilities.
0: Um, no, I was going to say, I didn't know that about special education. That seems crazy to me. Uh, the, the, so here's, here's where I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm currently struggling right now on, on the issue of education of kids in the South in particular is that, um, district lines everywhere in this country and with a special, uh, um, special, uh, intensity in the South have been carved up to exclude kids from attending, um, schools in different districts right like you know there's the the rise of certain types of suburban schools in mississippi where we're dealing with segregation academies on top of the the um, you know the, the creation of all these special school districts um I, charters always appealed to me as a way because like and depending on where you go and not knowing the georgia context really well kids could attend from almost anywhere um putting ish, the issue of charters aside um and saying like like let's let's put that as a tool away for a second What do we do about the just rampant segregation that's happening and that's happened in the South and and in some places accelerating, you know, like how do we get people from different backgrounds attending the same schools?
1: And I think that's a perfect segue. And, And it goes to my, my distinction. We have to be able to grapple with multiple problems and things at the same time. There's the issue of segregation, which undermines the delivery of public education, especially because often that segregation is, it begins with a conversation of race, but it also implicates a conversation of class and, uh, and poverty, uh, or can be an issue of English as a second language. And so our responsibility to deliver public education has to meet children where they are and has to be willing to invest wholly in their growth and their capacity. Segregation allows us to ignore the communities we don't want to deal with. It allows us to divert typically better-funded students into schools where they do not have to grapple with the same challenges as poorer students. And in the South, poverty is very much uh, indicated by race. And so where I stand is that instead of us being forced to grapple with the conversation of investment, of segregation, of a very strong difference in the type of education you get if you're urban versus rural. We get to ignore all of that by having these false debates about school choice. Because it's not a choice if you don't have the option of taking advantage of it. And so here's where I disagree with with my opponent. She has argued that she has only supported these privatization efforts to accomplish other goals that she voted for tax credit organizations, which, by anyone else's estimation and certainly by public uh, admission, is a voucher program. It's so for transparency. Um, she has voted for school takeover legislation, uh, which is the program that was pushed in Louisiana and in Michigan to essentially allow state takeover of schools and for private charters to come in and run those schools. You may have good intention, but we know that the result has been discrimination, isolation, and underfunding. Those are not the ways that we serve our children. And I do not believe that it is ever the right choice to deviate funds from the direct support of our public children. Now, that does not mean you don't put money into charters. Good charters should get funded. Four charters should be dismantled. And I opposed, I disagreed with my opponent because she voted for a statewide charter commission that did not have to meet responsibilities of local investigation and local investment. I, so where I stand on the larger conversation is that we can only tackle education if we think about it holistically, if we realize it's expensive, we also understand that it is the best predictor of economic mobility America has ever created. Stacey I can say this as we close out
0: uh, that the, the kids of Georgia will be lucky to have you and uh, my hope as the uh, as this campaign unfolds over the next few months is that that there are more and more opportunities to have this debate about the future for those kids because it You know, it sounds like there's a really important substantive debate underneath a lot of the noise right now in this race. And so, you know, my my hope and prayers are to that fact that that you and and Stacey Evans are able to have as many substantive conversations about this as possible, because it sounds like it could be one of the better substantive debates about education reform in the country. And so um, I'm, I'm eagerly watching. So thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. If I can do another thing. First, I want to say thank you to you and to Swati, for inviting me on. Uh, I also just want to point out that this is one of those races that can change the trajectory of our nation. Uh, As an African-American candidate, as the woman candidate, and as the only Black woman uh, to run for governor of Georgia, and if I win, depending on what else happens in some other races, I could be the first to ever get governor in the history of the United States. That facet of this election I think is also important because some folks are excited because of that and others are frightened by it. And part of my mission is to use this campaign to demonstrate that your qualifications more than anything have to be seen as the reason people vote. I don't want people to vote for me because I'm black. I don't want them to vote against me because I'm black. I don't want them to vote for me because I'm a woman. I don't want them to vote against me because I'm a woman. But I want them to understand that this election has the opportunity to send a very strong signal about the changing face of leadership in America and the ability of women of color in particular and black women specifically to help transform and build our society uh, can be won through selection.
0: Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are in your corner and watching you closely. Please let us know if you need anything. Uh, and thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me. And everyone should go to www.stacyabrams.com and sign up.
0: All right. Well, thank you.
1: Take care.